This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor hosts a roundtable discussion to talk about one person who survived COVID-19 thanks to convalescent plasma from her son-in-law. It's, a, I think, a comforting story. You hear a lot about uh, uh, anything that, that's bad will get a lot of press, but um, you know, sometimes I think it's, uh, it's, it's worth reflecting on uh, some of the some of the great things that are being done on the medical side and just also Floridians stepping up uh, to help folks uh, in need. While he concentrated on the good news, the governor did not mention the 9,046 fatalities caused by COVID-19 in Florida so far or the 148 new cases that were added to the list on Thursday. As fatalities rise behind the bars of the state prison system, Democrats in the state legislature renew their call to release nonviolent inmates who have almost finished their sentences and face the greatest threat from coronavirus. Someone who is currently imprisoned for a nonviolent drug charge who is ready to be released in the coming months does not deserve to have coronavirus added to that sentence. A deadly virus should not be a part of someone's punishment as they pay their debt to society. The teachers union and the governor's legal team square off today as a Tallahassee judge takes up the lawsuit challenging the state school reopening order. This emergency order, this hella high water approach to having brick and mortar or having in-person teaching is reckless, is defenseless, and frankly, it lacks empathy for the communities in this state. The state's trying to short circuit that lawsuit by asking the judge to toss it without a trial. State officials go to bat for Florida's agriculture industry as the U.S. Trade Representative holds a public hearing about the damage done to Florida seasonal growers, first by NAFTA and now by the USMCA trade deal. I am proud to speak out today on behalf of Florida's farmers and to implore the administration to take immediate action to provide remedies that are both effective and timely to protect them from further harm. We'll also have your calendar of political events and check in with a couple of Florida men who are getting attention for all the wrong reasons. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, August 14th. Florida logged 148 new COVID fatalities Thursday, driving the statewide death toll to 9,046. The health department also reported more than 6,000 new cases of coronavirus, which means more than 557,000 Floridians have been infected since the pandemic began. But Governor Ron DeSantis says those are not the numbers to watch. You know, the trends in the state of Florida uh, have, been, have been positive now for the last uh, several weeks. As we mentioned, uh, the COVID positive hospital census has been declining uh, for about the last three weeks, consistent with what we've seen in Northwest Florida. And um, I think it's down uh, over 30% uh, from the peak, which was probably around the, the 21st or 22nd uh, of July. Uh, that is a trend that was likely um, uh, indicated by the significant decline we've seen in Floridians uh, going to the emergency department for COVID-like illness. Uh, you know, we look at all this data and we try to make sense of it. Uh, you know, you got to take and really dig underneath those test results to really uh, make a determination about whether a particular day's test results are offering us a good indication of the facts on the ground or, or actual trends. So you look at that, you got to kind of make sense of it, but those, those COVID-like illness visits you know, we're seeing those decline all across the Sun Belt. So when you see that decline, you're going to then see the hospital admissions decline. And fortunately, you know, the, the mortality uh, you know, will decline from there. So that's been the best trend to watch. And that's the, the trend that we're going to keep looking at. 
but I do think people can look at the overall uh, dynamics and, um, uh, and, and, and feel you know, cautiously optimistic about the, about the direction that the state is going. The governor and the Florida Education Association are back in court today. FEA President Frederick Ingram says that emergency order forcing schools to reopen or lose funding is a vast overreach by the Department of Education that violates the state constitution. We cannot control this virus. The governor, the commissioner of education has not uh, controlled this virus in the way that we have a 14-day decline, which uh, in a way that we have a less than 5% community spread. And those are the things that the CDC has told us that are necessary uh, to open schools and that impacts each and every one of us. Uh, it is the job and duty of our governor, of our commissioner of education, as it relates to the constitution and it is embedded in the constitution to have a safe and secure public education system. They cannot ensure health, safety or security for our students nor for our faculty. And so this emergency order, this hella high water approach to having brick and mortar or having in-person teaching is reckless, it's defenseless, and frankly, it lacks empathy for the communities in this state. There are 43,000 cases uh, of children and students under the age of 18. That's not an insignificant number. That's not something that we should just brush over and say, you know what, let's just open our doors. It is not just about teachers. This is the educational village. This is about the secretaries that have to go in those schools. This is about the bus drivers who have to bring those kids to school. This is about the paraprofessionals who deal with our most challenged students. This is about those football coaches who want to get out there with their kids and those band directors and those uh, science teachers who want to create lab opportunities for our kids. Listen, we want to be in school. That's what we do. But unfortunately, our new normal dictates that we must deal with health and safety first. This is going to impact uh, teachers who have underlying issues, but it's also going to impact those teachers uh, who have poor healthy, who go to work and they have no underlying issues, but they may be taking care of an elderly parent at home, or they may have a, a child of their own that may have significant health issues. Our students are not dispensable. Our teachers are not dispensable. Every life is important. Shame on a governor and commissioner of education who is forcing uh, this, this, this kind of hell or high water approach. But in spite of that lawsuit, Governor DeSantis claims most teachers want to get back to the classroom. And he spent the past week saying how great it's been. You know, I know unions have certain thing and they represent, you know, some, but they don't represent all. Certainly the sentiment on this, um, you know, the, the excitement of a lot of the teachers from talking to the superintendent uh, was really something that, um, that I found very powerful. Because I think, you know, when you go into this, you're going into it knowing that you have an opportunity to really shape the lives of some of these young people and then to have that kind of taken back where you're just doing it through a computer screen, I think people realize that it's just not the same and that to be able to get back and do that personal touch again, uh, you know, will make difference in, in people's lives. So we, I think the districts that have done what they've done uh, have done it very thoughtfully. I know we got more that are going to be coming online uh, soon. Uh, and, um, and again, we're just going to support parents making the best choice that they think uh, is right for their, uh, for their kids. Well, at least he didn't compare the reopening of schools to the mission of the Navy SEALs who took out Osama bin Laden like he did Wednesday. As the coronavirus spreads through the state prison system, Democrats in the Florida House are once again calling on the governor to consider some sort of clemency for inmates who face the greatest danger from COVID-19. It's called compassionate medical release. But Representative Diane Hart of Tampa says there's no sign of compassion from the DeSantis administration, at least not for inmates. 13,763 confirmed covert cases among inmates and another 2,100 
among staffers. Due to the lack of action by the leadership in this state, more than 20,000 inmates are now being held in medical quarantine. That's one fourth of its population. However, not one was eligible for a compassionate release. As of August 12th at 3 p.m., there have been 73 inmate deaths and four staff related deaths. These numbers have continued to climb since March when we sent the first of many letters to both the governor's office, Surgeon General, and the Secretary of Corrections. I asked them in March to allow those who were on nonviolent offenders, those who had completed the majority of their sentence, and those who were vulnerable to contracting this virus due to underlying health issues to be granted compassionate release. Till this date, August 14th, 2020, I've yet to receive a response from those letters. State Senator Bobby Powell of Broward says they're not talking about releasing violent felons. This has more to do with the older inmates with health problems who frankly don't have that much time left, either on their sentence or their life. Each individual who is incarcerated is someone's family, is someone's loved one, and deserve to be counted as more than just the number. So once again, we're asking that uh, the governor do consider compassionate medical release for inmates who are elderly, nonviolent offenders over the age of 60, uh, medically ill inmates, with an emphasis on those who uh, have documented pre-existing conditions that are susceptible to COVID-19, and the release of inmates who are nearing or at the very end of their sentences for re to reduce the populations and assist in maintaining the CDC social distancing and disinfecting guidelines that are currently in place. We're asking for this once again, after we've seen the number of prisoners with COVID-19 explode massively. Other states have implemented strategies that have released those who are susceptible. And we are again calling on the governor and the secretary of the Department of Corrections, who has also contracted coronavirus himself, to be compassionate, to look at situations where we can release those who are at high risk so that we can prevent others from dying inside of a prison. They may have been sentenced for a crime, but sometimes those crimes did not sentence them to a life or death sentence from coronavirus. Representative Susan Valdez of Tampa says the state has a responsibility to protect all of its people, even the ones behind bars. A deadly virus should not be a part of someone's punishment as they pay their debt to society. Many of our facilities are already sweltering from the Florida heat, with prisoners housed in there in close proximity to one another and very limited ability to enact social distancing measures in a meaningful way and methods of quarantine being overwhelmed by the sheer number of cases. A lot of the inmates do not report their symptoms in fear that they would either not get treated and put in a hole where they do not see sunlight. And just this morning, my office received a call informing us that prisoners from one of our state facilities with COVID were being brought to the hospital and being put on ventilators. But even as they were on ventilators, were forced to remain shackled. These men were sedated heavily barely clinging to life, injected with drugs that paralyzed every single muscle in their bodies. But still nurses had to go get the key from 
the correctional officers, the guards out there outside their rooms to unshackle them so they can be moved around and cared for. When I hear stories like this, the question that comes to my mind is, who in heavens are we? I believe Floridians are better than this, and we owe it to those in our care, no matter what they have done in recognition of their humanity. The facts are simple. Conditions in Florida's prisons were right to exacerbate a deadly pandemic, and now we are seeing the results. This should be a wake-up call to all conditions in our facilities, not just during COVID-19, but beyond. Someone who is currently imprisoned for a nonviolent drug charge who is ready to be released in the coming months does not deserve to have coronavirus added to that sentence. But as far as the governor is concerned, there's really not much of a problem. Ron DeSantis says they're testing as many inmates as possible and quarantining the ones who are sick. I think after this week, I mean, we're going to have tested, uh, I think, almost every prisoner, all, uh, the huge majority of the prisoners. I know they've gone through, you know, all of them and do it. Um, you know, we have had some prisoners who, particularly some of the ones that, that, were, um, that were very elderly with health conditions, uh, end up hospitalized. We have lost some folks. Uh, you have um, the vast, vast, vast majority of the prisoners that test positive are completely asymptomatic, um, overwhelming uh, majority that are. So they're going to continue going through the, the testing regime. And, um, but I think the main thing is just isolating the folks who are symptomatic and, uh, and likely to be spreading it. And I know they've worked hard to do that. 73 inmates have died from COVID-19. Now just compare that to the 99 inmates who've been executed in Florida since capital punishment was revived back in the late 70s. You know, at the current rate, this virus will kill more inmates in 2020 than the executioner has in more than 40 years. Next up on the Sunrise Soapbox, Florida politicians are lining up to defend fruit and veggie farmers who are under financial assault from south of the border. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we're much obliged. The Florida Hospital Association has released the OPEN plan, designed to allow Florida's safe resumption of elective surgeries and procedures. OPEN stands for O, observe the COVID-19 rate of community occurrence. P, prevent transmission. E, establish the process to restore elective surgeries and procedures. And N, network with all healthcare providers. You can read the OPEN plan today at FHA.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. Florida used to be America's number one source of veggies during the winter months, and there's a long list of produce we produce, starting with avocados, going all the way through the alphabet until you reach zucchini. Then came the North American Free Trade Agreement, and in the 25 years since then, Florida's market share has been cut in half thanks to cheaper imports from Mexico. The Trump administration could have fixed that in the new trade agreement between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. It did not. And State Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed says Florida farmers, especially the seasonal fruit and veggie growers, are paying the price. Unfair Mexican trade practices continue to devastate our domestic agriculture industry. With a $137 billion economic impact, agriculture is Florida's second largest industry and first during times of economic downturns like we are currently experiencing due to COVID-19. Our 47,000 farms support over 2 million hardworking men and women, keeping our food supply strong and our nation's families fed. Our farmers are resilient throughout challenges like hurricanes, droughts, wildfires, invasive species, trade wars, and now global pandemics. 
Our farmers also suffer from increased and unfair foreign competition with the USMCA entering into force on July 1st. For 25 years, NAFTA allowed domestic markets to be flooded with cheap produce from Mexico due to its government's agricultural subsidies, as well as lower labor costs and safety standards. Domestic producers have ha been hopeful that these unfair practices would be addressed with the re renegotiation of NAFTA, but they found themselves on the cutting floor as the USMCA was finalized. Our seasonal producers cannot afford to operate while these unfair trade practices continue unabated. I am proud to speak out today on behalf of Florida's farmers and to implore the administration take immediate action to provide remedies that are both effective and timely to protect them from further harm. These unfair trade practices impact farmers beyond Florida, from Georgia to Mexico to Washington State. We wanted to provide the administration with a snapshot of the devastating impact they have had in our state. One cannot deny the harm being caused when faced with the data. But I implore the members of this hearing committee and the administration to see these figures not only as numbers on a chart, but as an attack on Americans' livelihoods. They are generations of family businesses, job-sustaining local communities, and food on the plates of our children. I am thankful that the administration will have the opportunity to hear directly from the farmers, families, and communities that are suffering due to lack of access to unfair trade remedies, first under NAFTA and now under USMCA. After seeing the numbers and hearing their stories, there can be no doubt as to the seriousness of this issue and the dire need for this administration to take immediate action under its existing trade authorities to stem the losses with our domestic seasonal produce industry. With the USMCA now in full force, the clock is ticking for your agencies to help us protect seasonal producers across the United States. The need for timely and effective remedies is even more urgent now as these same growers continue to suffer steep losses due to COVID-19 disturbances. Freed was testifying remotely before the U.S. Trade Representative, who has promised to come up with some sort of plan to address unfair trade practices with Mexico. Freed was not the only one to give the feds a piece of her mind. Senator Marco Rubio told the trade rep that policies have cost farmers billions of dollars and tens of thousands of jobs in Florida. In 2009, our fruit and vegetable farming sector contributed 39,000 jobs, over $6 billion to our economy. By 2018, the numbers for the sector, while still very important, had tumbled to 27,000 jobs and down to half, $3.2 billion uh, to our economy. And, and these losses perfectly correspond with these radical increases in Mexican produce shipments and Mexican market share during the same period of time. And these imported products are priced unfairly low, and, and it's largely due to the fact that these growers in Mexico are receiving significant subsidy. This is not a matter of Florida growers needing to adjust to a more competitive global market or, or even some failure on their part to modernize. This is simply a matter of the fact that these growers and Florida produce is in the direct crosshairs of these unfair trade practices. They are, in essence, deliberately try to, trying to put them out of business by heavily subsidizing the domestic uh, uh, industry inside of Mexico. Congressman Greg Stubbe says this is about more than just money. He believes the loss of farming in Florida is a matter of national security. Although our state produces many of the same crops as Mexico, the imbalance of the market landscape continues 
as unending stream of Mexican produce floods our U.S. markets at prices and in volumes that Florida farmers simply cannot compete with. From 2000 to 2019, we lost upwards of $200 million in tax revenue for our state's economy and $1.1 to $1.2 billion in sales, and nearly 40,000 Florida jobs as a result of the Florida produce industry's dwindling market share. Of course, as you know, this hasn't been earned fairly. Mexico's government heavily subsidizes virtually all aspects of its specialty crop production, amounting to an average of $200 million per year. As a result, produce is priced artificially low and floods the market during the same market window for Florida growers. Because of this, Mexico is now the largest exporter of fruits and vegetables to the U.S. market during Florida's winter growing season. This has given some Florida farmers no choice but to shut down since there's no trade mechanism available to combat these unreasonable practices that are systematically taking over U.S. markets. If we lose Florida farmers, U.S. could be forced to rely solely on foreign produce imports to feed Americans during the fall, winter, and spring months, which I think would be disastrous on a lot of different levels, not just for the impact that it would have on our communities, but the impact it would have on uh, our national security. And then there was Congressman Darren Soto, who focused on one particular crop, Florida blueberries. Mexico growers utilize unfair trade practices such as government subsidies, cheap labor, and suspect environmental practices, among other unfair practices to produce an artificially low-priced blueberry. Add Mexico growers dumping practices, flooding the market with cheap subsidized product, and the result has spelled disaster for Florida's blueberry industry. The economic damage has been particularly acute within the last 15 years. For example, in 2007, Florida growers had nearly one-third of the blueberry market share while the market share for Mexico growers was negligible. As of 2019, Mexico, Mexico accounts for nearly 30% of the blueberry market, and Florida's market share shrunk to about 16%. Price and supply costs are leveraged aggressively by Mexican growers, leaving Florida growers at a distinct disadvantage. Commissioner Freed and the boys are hoping this virtual hearing will lead to modifications of the new trade deal. She was the only agriculture commissioner in the country to oppose the USMCA. Your calendar of events begins with a meeting of the Florida Board of Medicine. They're online at 8. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 9. They'll update estimates of state general revenue collections. The Florida Board of Nursing Home Administrators holds an online meeting at 9. Senator Randolph Bracey hosts a farm share food distribution event from 9.30 until 12.30 in Orlando. And the Florida A&M Board of Trustees meets at 1 to discuss their budget. Finally today, it's time to check in with a couple of Florida men attracting attention for all the wrong reasons. A homeless Florida man is accused of moving into a luxury suite at the Al Lang Stadium in downtown St. Petersburg. Investigators say 39-year-old Daniel Neja spent about two weeks in the suite, even helped himself to food and merchandise during his stay. He was busted after a cleaning crew found blankets, shaving cream, and a razor in the suite. And a Florida man orders his deputies not to wear masks anymore. Marion County Sheriff Bill Woods sent an email to staffers saying deputies will not be allowed to wear face masks in the office or while on patrol. The only exceptions are areas that have a mandatory policy like hospitals and nursing homes. Visitors to the sheriff's office will also be required to remove their masks. That's it for today's installment of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee inviting you to tune in again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. <laughs>